Well, one of the things that I've been most thankful for uh, since moving to California from Florida is the change in topography. Whether I'm uh, driving on the 210 or looking north from my home, there's these protrusions of earth going heavenward that the locals tell me are called mountains. And uh, I've grown to appreciate those where I come from. We don't know anything about that. And uh, it's really wonderful to, to be in the midst of all this beauty. And one of the things in particular that I love is, is going hiking now. There's one that I'm kind of partial to on um, Echo Mountain. It's up at the top of Lake. And one of the reasons why I really like that mountain, not only because it's only 10 minutes from my home, but with just a little bit of ex- excursion, um, exertion, uh, you can see this unbelievable cityscape of L.A. planted right in the center of the Los Angeles uh, basin. It is really beautiful. And uh, it's one of the reasons why somebody who has an aversion uh, to cardio like me actually takes up hiking from now and then. Well, it occurred to me how strange a thing it would seem to somebody who had never been on a mountain why you would ever hike, right? Because so much of hiking is just trying to not hurt yourself. It's trying to uh, see potential hazards along the way so you don't break your ankle or fall into thorns or even fall off the side, God forbid. Uh, This is hiking. And so if you had no idea what the point was, you would ask, why in the world do you subject yourself to it? Well, all that changes the moment that you turn the corner and the view goes from monotonous dirt into expansive glory. And for that one moment, you become wonderfully small. And all the physical toil that it took to get up there melts away. And not only that, but it gives new purpose to the hike to get up there. Well, that's kind of where we find ourselves now in the book of 2 Corinthians. We've been hiking this book for about the entirety of the year. And though we've had the North Star of the Gospel as our guide the entire way, we have admittedly gone through some really rough patches. Paul's most intense letter, personally intense letter, is 2 Corinthians. He wears his heart on the sleeve. He pleads with the Corinthians to open their heart to him again. He deals with such popular topics as church discipline and as tithing. And he even has to um, protect himself and defend himself uh, from false teachers who had come into his church and had launched these ad hominem attacks on him. It's a very personal letter. And that's what makes the opening words of his final greeting today sparkle with hope. He just went through all of this. Even just a couple weeks ago, he said, test yourself to make sure that your faith is real. He's saying these type of things to the Corinthians. And in the final greeting today, he starts off with these words. Finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice. Rejoice. This is the first thing that he wants them to finally do. Why would he say rejoice? Remember that Paul is their pastor. So why first and foremost finally rejoice? Well, I think one of the reasons is because rejoicing necessitates taking our eyes off of ourselves. When we rejoice, for a moment we reestablish a proper vision of the glory in front of us on the horizon, like turning the corner on the mountain. Rejoicing is what happens when we look up and then we look forward. Rejoicing is seeing the hope that is illuminating the horizon. 
the transcendent reality of God's love towards us in Christ. And rejoicing doesn't mean that the hike is over and that it won't even get treacherous again. Rejoicing just reminds us that we are not alone in it. We have never been alone in it. And there is always hope on the horizon. Finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice. Look up and look out. See the hope that is before you. The scriptures are teeming with this exhortation to rejoice in the hope of glory. Nowhere is it more explicit than when the Apostle Peter writes this. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. And so, yes, we look at the trials, but finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice. The Lord Jesus made this point as well when speaking to his disciples in Luke. He says, Behold, I have given you authority over all the power of the enemy, Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Don't rejoice ultimately in the power that I have given you over the enemy. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Christians, we have sufficient reason to rejoice in all circumstances. Our names are written in heaven. Are we a rejoicing people? Because I need this exhortation daily. Because I am so often discipled by the culture towards outrage and cynicism. And so I need to be reminded to rejoice. I mean, Starbucks cup, anyone? I mean, that was the most bizarre. People didn't even remember why they were outraged. They were outraged because they thought people were outraged at first, but then nobody knew if anybody was outraged, and they were outraged about that. And this is what the media does. It just chums the water because for some reason we love being outraged. But do our friends know us more for what we're outraged by or for the hope that we have that causes us to rejoice? Corinth had all kinds of controversies roaring and Paul had spent a good amount of time correcting and exhorting. But now he calls us to lift our heads toward the horizon Stop for a moment to fill our lungs afresh with the grace of God in Christ and to rejoice. He's calling us to live in light of this. And after this, he's going to give us four specific exhortations how this vertical reality should now reach out into a horizontal response. So that's where we're going for the rest of our time. We're going to look at the four horizontal responses that Paul calls us to and then show us how within this letter alone, he's already established the vertical reality that grounds these responses. So the first horizontal response that Paul calls us to is this. Immediately after saying rejoice, he writes, aim for restoration. There was a good reason for him to write this. A huge theme of First and Second Corinthians is that of reconciliation and restoration within the church. Um, If you were here since the beginning, you'll remember uh, in chapter 2, 
when Paul is encouraging them to restore um, a member of the church who had apparently um, been kicked out because of unrepentant sin. This actually might even be the figure Paul refers to in 1 Corinthians, who was sleeping with his stepmom, but now apparently has turned. I know it's strange. You should go look it up. Um, And Paul is saying, let them back into relationship. He writes this, I beg you, I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. And he says to do this so that we would not be outwitted by Satan. This is a huge spiritual insight. One of the tactics of the enemy is to keep us from aiming towards restoration. Now, it's important to note that there is a big difference between forgiveness and restoration. Forgiveness is a command. We can all forgive anybody who's sinned against us. Even if they don't recognize that they've sinned against us, we can, indeed, we are commanded to forgive But restoration is the welcoming back into relationship with somebody. And this requires that both parties acknowledge that the relationship was fractured and also what they brought to fracture it. This is how restoration happens, and that's the only way a relationship can be restored. If someone has sinned against you and really has sinned against you, and then you let them back into relationship after a season with no talking about what happened, this is not restoration. This is uh, uh, enabling, if not codependency. This is not genuine relationship, but rather the scriptures call us towards genuine restoration, to have difficult conversations, to drag the darkness into the light so that we can move forward in relationship. This is what aiming for restoration is. So this is the horizontal response that Paul calls us to today. And in, uh, he, in chapter 5 it is, he actually grounds this in the vertical reality, maybe one of the greatest verses in all of Second Corinthians, chapter 5, verse 18 and 19. He says, God, through Christ, reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the ministry of reconciliation. We have been reconciled to God through Christ. And it's this vertical reality that enables our horizontal response, that we have been given the ministry of reconciliation. This is how we aim for restoration. Admittedly, this is not something that historically I've been uh, really good at. There's one time specifically about six years ago uh, where I was in a really sad place. I'd had a a, a messy issue with my bandmates, um, and I'd become incredibly bitter, especially there's two who were my best friends in the band that I'd really removed myself from. And the reality is they had already owned up to their side of it, but I wanted to make them pay uh, for it by withholding my relationship. And it finally uh, hit a breaking point in my own soul where I just couldn't handle it anymore. And so I called up the one guy and I said, you think we can meet up just to talk? And, and he said, yeah, man, we're actually all together right now. We're about to throw some meat on the grill. So come on over whenever you want. And that was a very, very significant moment for me. I would realized how sad and small my world had become. They were literally five minutes away from me where they'd been the entire year. 
enjoying one another. They had moved on. They recognized that there was issues, but they had owned up to them. And here I was withholding my relationship, all the while holding the keys to my own cell. And so I, I went over there, and I had a meal with them, and then we went out back, me and the two guys, to talk. I maybe got three words out, and then I just started sobbing. <laughs> and I managed to choke out the words, uh, I can't carry this anymore. See, when we don't aim for rec- uh, reconciliation, we have abandoned the gospel. And it's a spiritual war. The enemy wants you to swim in the brackish water of bitterness because it's the anti-gospel, and it's a lie. We think we are gaining something, but our souls are the ones that are in captivity. We are to aim for reconciliation. The second horizontal response that Paul calls us to in this text, aim for reconciliation and then comfort one another. Comfort one another. How practical and precious is it that he gives this to us this morning. As the uh, church, we should seek to comfort one another. Isn't it incredible how far just a few words of comfort can actually go? Even a few lines in a text message can be like lowering a rope to somebody who has fallen into a pit. We should comfort one another. And this is one of the benefits of being in community groups because there is a certain amount of refreshment that takes place here but it's in the context of smaller groups where we can actually really get to know each other, really understand what's going on beneath the hood and be vulnerable and really pour out comforting grace to each other. I was the beneficiary of that even this week. I went to a Biola for an advising meeting. I'm looking to start another master's in the spring. And uh, I was having uh, breakfast in the cafeteria, and I had this strange blend of feeling like the really, really old guy now and like a freshman on the first day because I was all by myself and every other table had 10 people around them. And it was this bizarre paradox at work there. But within that space, within the time being in the cafeteria, I got three messages from uh, people in my community group just saying, praying for you, really excited to hear how things go. And it was huge. It was the comfort that I needed. I felt kind of isolated from my community. And they wouldn't have known that if I hadn't been in community with them. Proverbs 18.21 gives a wonderful insight into the power that language can have. It says, death and life are in the power of the tongue. Oftentimes when we quote this proverb, we focus on the negative aspect of it, namely that the tongue can bring death, and that is true. But let us not quickly overstep the next part. Life is in the power of the tongue of the tongue. You have the ability to inject comfort and hope into somebody by a word. It doesn't cost you anything, and it is incredibly valuable to the person who receives it. Of course, comfort comes through more than just our words, though. Uh, As we enter into this holiday season, in Los Angeles especially, we have a unique opportunity to comfort one another in the context of relationship. Uh, By a show of hands, how many people here do not have family in the area? A good amount. I'd say probably a quarter or a third, and I'm in your company as well. And even if we go to visit family for a couple of days over the holidays, historically, this season is one of the most depressing for people, and this is where we need to be the church to each other. We need to be hospitable. 
even go outside of our comfort zone because there's so many around us who need comfort, who just need to be around people. And surely, if you can't find that in the church, where are you going to find that? Now, it takes stepping outside of our own comfort zone, but it is worth it. And as Pastor Chuck said, um, this uh, December, we're going to try to pour out some comfort into the people at Door of Hope in December 5th. Uh, I really encourage you to be a part of that. Um, it will cost you a Saturday night, but it will not be a sacrifice, I promise. If you come and minister to them, God has designed it that when you minister to somebody, you receive comfort in the process. It's an amazing thing, and he will show you something about himself in it. Which brings us to the vertical reality that fuels this horizontal response. Namely, that in Christ, God has comforted us completely. In Christ, God has comforted us. Paul says it this way in the beginning of this book. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comforts, who comforts us in all of our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Ultimately, through Christ, God has comforted us by forgiving all of your sin and imputing all of the righteousness of Christ to you. And here's the wonderful truth in this verse. There is a grand purpose behind all of our pain. God is forging something in our souls that in a very short amount of time, those in your community are going to need. And it can only come through uh, the affliction that you're facing now. This is exactly what the text says. I was afflicted so God could comfort me so that I could be a comfort to someone else in a very short amount of time. Someone's going to come into your uh, path who needs that diamond that you found in the darkest valleys. You do realize that's where God hides the diamonds. He hides them in the valleys. And so we need to go get them so that we can offer them up to our community when they need a word of comfort. Scripture teaches us that by Christ's wounds we are healed. And God has ordained that we follow in the footsteps of our master. And that by our wounds we can heal each other. God is committed to turning pain and suffering on his head. And he has called us into it. What a sweet privilege and responsibility to comfort one another. Finally, brothers, comfort one another. Number three. The horizontal response of living in peace. He says, agree with one another and live in peace. And immediately he grounds this response in the vertical reality that the God of love and peace will actually be with you when you do this. Some of us did not come from homes that we would be defined as bastions of peace. And so when conflict arises, it makes us very anxious because you've seen what comes from volatility. And even the thought of being around certain people over the holiday season might cause a knot to form in your stomach. So peace might feel like just avoiding landmines. When the concept of peace comes to you, it's just avoiding landmines. However, God desires that the roots of our peacemaking sink deeper than just the topsoil of conflict avoidance. And that's why Scripture calls us to sink our, sink our roots into the bedrock of the capital P peace that we have in Christ. 
you are at peace with God. We see this in Ephesians, where Paul writes to them, Christ came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to you who were near. Christ came, and he preached peace to us. This is the ground for our peace towards each other. Because if our hope of peace is ultimately in the stability of our relationships, we are in a very uh, not good place, (laughs) many of us can agree. Uh, But once we realize we are at peace with God totally, we're safe. It doesn't mean that there aren't conflicts and there isn't pain, but our peace can't be touched because it's grounded in the reality that the God of the universe came down and preached peace to you in the person of Jesus Christ. Does this enter our minds when we seek to be at peace with each other? In his letter to the Philippians, Paul seeks to bring agreement and peace to some conflict that had arisen between two women in the church there. Now, it doesn't tell us what the issue was, but Paul writes this. He says, I entreat Judea and I entreat Cintiq. Agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Isn't it interesting that part of his encouragement towards bringing peace is highlighting that their names are in the book of life? That wasn't incidental to him saying that. You realize that, right? There's a reason Paul says their names are in the book of life. If you weren't raised in the church, uh, the book of life is what the Bible speaks of when it uh, speaks of the names that God has collected of those whom Jesus has saved. And so in saying this, Paul brings this reality to bear on the conflict between these two women. What does the fact that their names are written in the book of life have to do with them agreeing with one another? Well, it means that if you can take a step back and bring that to bear on your conflict at hand, it's a powerful source for giving grace to each other and giving peace to each other. That doesn't mean that conflicts aren't real and we should actively seek to resolve them. But if we can take a step back and remember, your name is written in the book of life because Christ has preached peace to you. Surely that will soften our hearts. Surely that will give us a foundation for peace that is unshakable. So as Paul wraps up this letter, he has exhorted us to aim for reconciliation and restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another and live in peace. And finally, he says in verse 12, greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. And the horizontal response here is one of familial affection. We are called to exhibit familial affection. And this is grounded in the horizontal reality that the God of love will be with you. Our openness with our love and affection comes from the love that God has given us in Christ. The language of greeting with a holy kiss is is family language. It's the language of a family coming together and showing a familiar affection to one one another. And the reality is that there's some in here, especially those of us who are single, who can count on one hand the amount of times in a week you actually get 
physical affection. And Paul is saying that the church should, in some degree, fill that void by being a family to one another. That's why he's saying it. He says, greet one another with a holy kiss. Treat each other like family. He uses this language four other times in the New Testament. And it's for a reason. I'm reading a book right now called uh, The Imperfect Pastor by a guy named Zach Eswine. And I wanted to read a section of it to you because he hits on this point in such a really precious way because this language needs to be treated well, um, the idea of what familial affection looks like in the context of the church. So let me read from Zach Eswine. He writes, In the second year of my first pastorate, I began singing songs and leading a weekly Bible study at a local assisted living facility for the elderly. After the study and the song, the eyes of one elderly woman glistened with tears. She walked towards me, kissed my cheek, and thanked me. I kissed her cheek in return. This was their custom, not mine, and admittedly, I felt uncomfortable. But I gave her a hug. I took a moment to pray for her. She gave thanks to God. I thought nothing more about it. The following Wednesday after the study and the song, I rose from the piano and was dumbfounded to notice that a line of men and women immediately formed. Each one seemed to be waiting their turn. The aged woman kissed my cheek. The silver-headed and balding men shook my hand. I awkwardly returned these gestures and prayed for them. Hugs blossomed. Smiles unfolded like petals. Tears moistened and accumulated as if soaked by the dew of a sunlit morning. Strange. I think men and women formed a line because safe and brotherly human touch was like a rare gem. A handshake, a hug, presence, a kiss on a cheek, prayer. Human touch the way a family in Christ is meant to offer one another was a treasured commodity to take advantage of while it lasted. Powerful. There is something so refreshing in safe, familial affection towards each other. And as in all things, Jesus Christ is our teacher here. Healing came through his hands. Luke 4. All those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him. And laying his hands on each one of them, he was healing them. Mark 7. They brought to him one who was deaf and spoke with difficulty, and they implored him to lay his hand on him. There is healing in a safe, brotherly and sisterly touch. Now, if you're a dude here who has the hots for some girl, this is not your green light. You'll remember that we talked about church discipline earlier back. We're talking about the stuff of family here. You guys know what he's talking about. This isn't weird. This is family affection. This is a hand on a shoulder with a sincere and unrushed, how are you? This is a warm hug after community group. This is putting your arm around a friend who clearly needs prayer, and even if they don't ask for it, you come and offer it up for them. This is what Paul says. And the horizontal response of family affection comes from the vertical reality that through Christ, God has made us a family. This isn't hyperbole. We are the family of saints. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. That's why he begins the final greeting, brothers and sisters rejoice. And so we are to be warm and affectionate towards each other. Well, in conclusion to this message, as we near the finish of 2 Corinthians also, 
We've talked a lot about hardship and God's comfort and having a certain view of God's sovereignty that allows us to realize that it's all for a purpose. And uh, to that end, I wanted to invite our sister, uh, Rane Harrison, up just to, to share with us a little bit about what this has looked like in her life. The reality is we can probably learn more from her in t- three minutes than me in 30. So, Renee, welcome, and thank you for, uh, for taking this time. Let me get this for you. All right. Well, you look beautiful. Yes, uh, she informed me that this is the start of her birthday week. I've learned that females have birthday, <laughs> birthday weeks, and uh, so I'm learning. I'm taking notes beforehand, so thank you for helping me out there, sister. Well, I just want you to know I, I, I love you. Ever since I've been here, you've been one of the sisters. I think I'm going to make you cry before we even start. I'm setting you up for failure. Um, but I, I just feel like I have just learned from you in observing your life and your strength, and so thank you for agreeing to speak with us for a bit. So the first thing I wanted to ask, um, how has the reality that you are at peace with God ministered to you specifically through some of the valleys? Um, I think for me, this has been a very difficult year. Um, starting off with a change of a job, then after that came um, a breakup, a heartbreak. Um, after that, I got sick. I went through a bout with depression. And then now I'm dealing with some um, issues with my son being special needs. So it's been very difficult, but I think that what has helped me is to realize the fact that Jesus is the light of the world, and it's in the midst of very dark places that you're mo- you can most clearly see him. So to me, my peace has come from Scripture. So in those moments when... Um, I'm in the middle of depression, and it just feels like a very dark night. I I open up to the psalm that says, you know, so why are you downcast within me? Hope thou in the Lord. Or um, with my son, I think about the scripture that says we're fearfully and wonderfully made, and how that doesn't just mean my organs are put together very nicely inside (laughs) of my body, but the way that his brain works. God made that wonderfully, even if it's not to be part of the common core in school or the teachers don't see or understand or the psychologists don't understand. I know that God made his brain in a specific way to give him glory and that he's going to do something great for him sometime in his lifetime because of the way his brain is wired. Hmm. Thank you for sharing that. And throw a a bit of a curveball, but we talked about it briefly last night. Um, So the idea of that pain isn't wasted because it forges something in us that we can use to comfort somebody else. Um, is that something in your life that you've experienced either that you can now comfort in a unique way and have been able to, or maybe somebody has for you? What's that look like? Um, I know like the other day I had lunch with a friend because actually it's a birthday month. Oh, I'm going to see. <laughs> Anybody have a pen? I need to, uh, yeah, of course. And, um, birthday year. Yeah, just keep it going. And so I've been visiting friends one by one that are special to me. And as we were at lunch, she was sharing how um, how hurt she is that she's um, we're all coming to the age where maybe bearing children is no longer an option, yeah. and she hasn't been able to carry full term, mm-hmm. and how that hurts her. But how she can't share that with others because as she shares that, a look of horror goes across their face, and then she ends up comforting them when she's in need of comfort. <laughs> And she was saying, I, I just can't share that. And I was trying to explain to her that that's exactly 
why God puts suffering into our lives so that we can share with others the comfort that we receive yeah. from him. And we sat there and we cried for a while and she shared and <laughs> I shared. And at the end, I felt like both of us left the table encouraged that God is good, that um, Christ was tempted in every way that we ever could be, whether it be with sadness or betrayal or just feeling like our bodies are, you know, betraying yeah, us yeah, yeah. and to understand that there's nothing that we can suffer that would even compare to the suffering that Christ endured for us. Right, right. So not that God uses our pain, but he even designs it so that we can comfort others. Thank you so much for sharing. I just want to take a moment to, uh, to end our time with prayer. I'm going to pray for Renee as well, and then we'll move on. Father in heaven, we thank you for this sweet time. We thank you for your word, um, which acts like a Rosetta Stone for our soul and shows us all the meaning in every aspect of our lives. We thank you for the great truth that now through Christ, you have promised to never withhold a good thing from us. So no matter what we're experiencing, no matter the pain or the triumph or the hardship or the rejoicing, it is all for a purpose. You are working it all together for our good and your glory. Lord, I thank you for um, Rane and the pillar at PRISM that she has been. And she is a wonderful and beautiful and strong woman, and we have so much to learn from her in. Lord, I pray for her in this season that you would continue to give her a spirit of wisdom with her children, that you would continue to give her a spirit of joy amidst some hardship, and that you would continue to make her heart sensitive to those around her who now need the comfort that she herself has received. And so even this upcoming week, I pray that she would have encounters that the Holy Spirit has clearly um, designed and that she would be able to step into that and pour out great comfort. Father, we thank you that if Second Corinthians has taught us anything, it's taught us that you are the God of all comfort, both here and now, but more importantly, forever as we spend eternity with Jesus Christ, could there be any greater comfort? Apply these truths to us, even right now, Lord. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you, Renee. Well, now we're going to enter into a season of uh, response. Um, we're going to bring our tithes and our offerings um, to the Lord. We do this as an act of worship. This is not something that's separate from worship, but giving is an act of worship. You can bring them to the boxes here, or you can give online. And we're also going to respond by... Uh, taking the sacrament of communion. You can see this is spiritual comfort food, right? In it, we're reminded of the broken body and shed blood of Jesus Christ. See, the comfort that the, uh, that, uh, the Lord gives us isn't some ungrounded, nebulous, ambiguous feel-goodery. It is a blood-bought, secure salvation that Christ has purchased for us. He bought it for us the gift that we needed, the salvation that we had nothing to pay for with, Christ bought it for us, and he did so with his blood. And then he rose again three days later, where he not only defeated death and sin, but he secured eternal life for us. And so this meal is a celebration. This is a time for us to do some soul work. If something came to your mind um, as you heard the word that convicted, um, take some time to repent of it. If somebody came to your mind that you need to seek restoration with, 
do so immediately afterwards, um, your joy will be filled and Christ will be glorified. So when you're ready, you can come. We take the bread and we dip it in the wine here at Prism, and then you can return to your pew. And we'll also uh, celebrate by singing two more uh, hymns to Christ. So when you're ready, you can come. Won't you stand now?